Welcome to the Religion and Story podcast. On this week's episode, we are going to be talking about biblical criticism. Now, uh, biblical criticism is, broadly speaking, uh, a way of reading the Bible, trying to find out uh, what's in it, what it should mean, and the best way for us to understand it today. Now, obviously, that's a very low-level definition. We're going to uh, talk about some of the ins and outs of it. Uh, and uh, talk about what it means for our faith today. So, uh, Daniel, I know that you've taken some classes that delve deeply into biblical criticism. So, why don't you tell us tell us more? What does it mean? What's the purpose of it? I almost uh, resent you bringing up the fact that I've uh, taken classes on it because I know if any of my professors are to hear this, they're going to be ashamed of how little I remember those classes. The, uh, the, the first class I, I took on uh, biblical criticism was a class at Harding, an undergrad, called Critical Issues, and the name of the class uh, had a, the double meaning of we are going to deal with biblical criticism and learn about it, but also deal with some of the important issues that it brings up, and we were, we were going to do that throughout this podcast. So um, I'll try to be brief, um, but also be thorough. First thing that's worth Uh, mentioning is the history of biblical criticism. Biblical criticism, while it existed in some forms uh, before this, it really started to develop after the Reformation during the Enlightenment period. As people began to recognize that uh, the the text of the Bible mirrors some some features, uh, some traits of other ancient texts. And so trying to apply our, our knowledge for how we analyze those and are able to study those ancient texts and apply that to study of scripture, as well as uh, criticism in general, uh, at, at least what is born during the Enlightenment is simply the desire to, to study things and to develop theories about them in all sorts of different categories. And of course, we are dealing mostly with biblical criticism. Um, So that developed. uh, There are a handful of different types of biblical criticism or subcategories. Textual criticism is uh, simply, obviously, looking at the text, trying to study the text. Uh, And there's a lot that goes into that, so I'm not going to go be too specific. There um, is what's called redaction criticism. Redaction criticism is trying to understand how uh, different editors of the Bible have worked and how they have uh, put different texts together. Form criticism is simply identifying that there are different forms or what you might call genres in the Bible. Uh, So a a blessing or a, a message from an angel is an ancient form. And we see those scattered throughout the Bible, and they all have uh, similar characteristics, and it obviously helps to look at how are they different in different situations. Um, there are a lot of other different criticism criti- uh, or subcategories of criticism, uh, looking at how different ancient manuscripts uh, work together and trying to piece together what the, the original text may have looked like, what's called the Ur text. Um, and, that's probably all I can remember off the top of my head and without going on for too long. But yeah, like Michael said, criticism is simply the, the effort or the study of 
some subject, in this case the Bible, trying to understand it a little bit better, um, not being afraid to ask difficult questions, um, and bringing a sort of philosophical skepticism, uh, saying that we, we can't trust any of our previous assumptions and what, what questions and what answers does that lead us to. So uh, I'll first say, are there any are there any topics or ideas about biblical criticism I failed to bring up? I know, Steve, and you recently also had a class on that. Um, yeah, what, uh, what else out there? I would say that it's important to for our listeners to know that there are different levels of biblical criticism uh, that need to be recognized where you pointed out people that are uh, trying to critique the original Greek and uh, and look at the different variations of how words are used and what the, uh, it's just taking all the different pieces of the puzzle and putting them together to find out what the, the intent of the author was. Uh, where uh, if you take a step more closer to the, uh, the common man, you're going to see biblical criticism as uh, trans- just looking at what it says in English and how we are supposed to apply those things um, on a much more uh, uh, surface level. So, uh, but you mentioned the redaction. That's probably my favorite thing to look into to see uh, why certain uh, words are used in the translation, uh, where if a word has different variations in it, um, how do we know exactly what they meant or uh, what the focus of a certain verb might be? What's it referring to, or an adjective more accurately? And, uh, and because if you uh, if something is unclear, like you said, you're having to look at other manuscripts to figure out how it was commonly used, uh, what uh, it might have been referring to uh, during that time. And so, looking at <clears throat> looking at the different ways that things are used and coming up to a consensus, and that's why there's different differentiating opinions on uh, the, what certain verses are saying. Now, how much of those actually uh, fall under uh, uh, a direct conflict with someone else's doctrine, that's up for debate. So, but yeah, those are the things that stand out for me. Michael, is there any other uh, ideas that you're familiar with worth bringing out? So, um, one that I think has become the most popular to, to the extent that biblical criticism is capable of entering mainstream culture. Um, I think the most famous example would be canonical criticism, uh, specifically which books of the Bible belong in the Bible. And uh, for our listeners, uh, if you've ever heard of the Da Vinci Code, which was a popular book, I I think starting back in 2003, maybe, maybe 2004, somewhere in there. Uh, It's been a long time. Um, and that book basically uh, presented the narrative that there was great controversy uh, about which books would enter into uh, the canon and which would not. Um, and so then within uh, serious scholarship, there is a division about how much division there was. Uh, some uh, would say, uh, I think it's fair to say the more conservatives uh, more conservative Christians are likely to say that there was not much of any division uh, amongst Orthodox Christians. Uh, 
well, and even using the word orthodox kind of gives away some of it there. If you're orthodox, you're going to believe what is accepted, whereas there are those who would try to, uh, who, who would say that some of the disagreements were uh, larger than we might give them credit for. Uh, so, so that discussion about which books go in scripture and which don't, I think uh, perhaps is worthy of our discussion today. Um, beyond that, I think the most famous ones might be something of, of something like textual criticism. I'm thinking of the Jefferson Bible, where Thomas Jefferson literally went in and uh, you know, you know, cut out, uh, marked out different parts of uh, the miracles of Jesus, uh, or um, you know, Martin Luther not liking the Book of James, something like that, uh, that shows the history of um, textual criticism. Uh, which of these should we talk more about, guys? So, yeah, let's start. Stephen brought out that there are some that are more detail-oriented, closer to the text, and then it gets broader uh, from there. So let's start at the, the closest thing to the text. Uh, there is obviously a lot of um, discussion and debate about, the, about piecing together uh, ancient manuscripts and trying to understand what did the uh, uh, the original texts say, uh, which I'll, I'll go ahead and say is maybe even a little misleading when you're talking about the Old Testament. With the New Testament, we can say there are almost definitely some original uh, epistles, documents that were written. Maybe th there's some debate about that, but most people are saying, yeah, they're original documents, and then how, how close can we get to what those said? The Old Testament, there's a lot of discussion that, or a lot of people who think there isn't really an original text like we may think of an original text. Uh, that, for instance, Isaiah, there was never anything that would be 90% or even maybe 50% of the Isaiah we have today. The Isaiah we have today is a conglomeration of other documents. So yeah, let, let's talk about those discussions, that discussion of the text and trying to uh, piece together um, the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic to get something um, like the originals. D Daniel, is it is it fair to say uh, that um, the age of our manuscripts matters here, right? So one of the ways that we can say, okay, this, is, this was at least a complete text by X date is by going back to the oldest, uh, the oldest piece of that scripture that we have. So um, that's why I, I think it was in 1953, I think that's probably about right, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, which are dated uh, between uh, 200 and 100 BC. Uh, as the as the date when they were put together, um, we can talk a little bit about that uh, too. Um, I would say that one thing that we should point out is that even the most conservative Christian uh, would agree that some of the Old Testament books were pieced together. The most obvious one would be the Psalms, uh, which are written by many different authors, uh, from Moses to David to the sons of Asaph. Um, and so we have this wide spectrum of authors, and eventually someone put all of those together. Uh, perhaps then you, you can look at other books and say, all right, it looks like someone wrote this section, and then someone tacked on this at the end. Um, 
most Christians, if, if you put them into a corner, wouldn't say that, um, you know, priest in 500 BC editing a text really messes with their faith, as long as we're allowed to say that it is still spirit-inspired, that God himself is working through those people to, uh, to, to move the text in the way that they want to. Still, the way that these books are put together does matter for how we think about the books and, and the message that they're putting forward. Um, you know, you brought up Isaiah. To the extent that there are different sections of the book that have different messages, it's, it would be important for us to say, all right, within this section of the book, um, there is a coherent message. And if you're upsetting other people with the other parts, just say, all right, well, let's just stick to this part of it and see what this part has to say, rather than trying to make them speak to each other. Sure. Yeah. See, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think that's actually really interesting about how the Old Testament, uh, how it has developed over time, where the book of the law that um, we have from Moses uh, was consistently used and referenced uh, during uh, the other time uh, periods in the Bible, the New Testament, for example. Yeah. Um, and so the uh, the messages of the prophets uh those were compiled as well and um and at what point did the israelite nation uh put those together i mean i've never had a class that i'm just genuinely asking uh just out of curiosity i wonder how that happened um and so but yeah because most of the focus that we see in our history classes are all regarding the church because the church uh uh, had that um, autonomy at that from an early point, if if you want to consider it that, where God is interacting um, with individuals, inspiring them, because we have, uh, you know, the, the ones that didn't make the cut, where uh, if you go and look at why they didn't make the cut, it's because they were, uh, um, the, they were not a direct witness, or they were, uh, um, the, the, it contradicted one of the other gospels of a direct witness. Those are the two that, uh, I know that there's more reasons than that. I think there's four that uh, I've at least heard of. It looks like you, you got one. So uh, j just that it's not, no one actually believes that the person who they say wrote it actually wrote it, which I guess goes along with direct witness. If you don't believe that that person is actually Thomas or whoever. Um, one book uh, that, that was included in some groupings early on um, is The Shepherd of Hermes, which is a good book. It, it offers up uh, teaching that is in line with the Gospels, uh, but because of what we were talking, what Stephen mentioned earlier, didn't pass the test for what should be included in the canon. So there's, you know, ex there are very few books that you know, some thought should go in, uh, but eventually didn't make it. Right. See, I'm going to give you more time to talk if you had more to say there. But uh, I think it's just also a fun fact for our listeners that in early Christian circles, the Shepherd of Hermas and First Clement were, um, by many Christians, preferable. They, they liked those books more than some of the books that actually made it in, uh, particularly the book of Revelation, which you can probably understand why a lot of people 
weren't that interested in this book that they had no idea what it was saying. Um, the, the cryptic, the crypticness of revelation has been, uh, accepted for 2000 years. People said, this is a weird book. Sorry, Stephen, go ahead. No, you say it has been uh, accepted, but it's been accepted with um, just for what it is. This is very different than the rest of the yeah. writings that are in the Bible. It's a, <clears throat> a prophecy of uh, uh, something that's eternal and not within our tangible world, yeah. uh, which the human language can only capture so many things because it's finite. And uh, so how this was captured with pen to paper, um, quill to paper, papyrus, whatever it was, and uh, um, we have to just take it that for the message that is in Revelation as well. Um, you know, because you have uh, religions like Jehovah's Witness, that, uh, they really dig into the details that are in that book and try and extrapolate from those where it's a prophecy of what the church is going to be, where how much of that is factual versus how much of it is just telling the story of what the church is going to become. Uh, and so clearly there's a hard line of division between uh, people that interpret it uh, to that extreme versus um, more, I guess it, it has become traditional, uh, uh, symbolic. Yeah. Uh, if y'all want to say more about sort of the nitty gritty of textual criticism, um, feel free to, but I'd also like to kind of discuss maybe the next level up, which, oh, well, depending on who you ask, maybe it's the level below it, source criticism and, uh, form criticism. I want to talk more about how biblical authors, um, may or may not be using other documents in their development of their own texts. Uh, so a few examples, uh, the book of Genesis looks like, uh, and this actually introduces the idea of, um, dis uh, discussions of authorship, this first example, but it looks like the book of Genesis might be combining at, at least two, if not more different textual traditions uh, to documents or oral traditions, whatever it may be. Um, this is most apparent in the story of Noah. You've probably, you may have heard, if not, it's worth going and looking at. There's a lot of duplicated information in the story of Noah, and you can actually split it up, and together it makes two coherent stories if you take all the duplicate verses and split them. Um, another, the, the other probably more popular example is the Gospels, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they look similar, and uh, this is partially because it looks like they were using each other to, to write um, to write their Gospels. Uh, Mark wrote his first, according to most people, and Luke and Matthew use Mark to write theirs. Uh, some of our listeners that I, I'm thinking of certain people specifically think that um, Matthew and Luke used each other in addition to using Mark. Uh, what's more widely accepted is that they did not use each other. They used a common mystery document that we don't have anymore today. Sometimes called Q. Um, so what are your thoughts? Possibly God. Well, yeah. or could it, I, another, 
uh, a stand-in for Q that I've heard is that there was a common person that they both interviewed. Sure. Um, now, Jesus. Uh, well, some, that someone that was good. recounting later on right. a word word for word, you know, things that would show up the same in both sources. Or it could have been multiple people. It's not just, yeah, sure. like they're all buddies. They're part of the church. So I'm going to go talk to Brother Joe and Brother John. He also hit up both of those as he was compiling. Not to say that that's not a possibility, um, but to highlight something that Michael mentioned is that the, the texts are identical in spots that aren't in Mark suggesting that they're they're reading something they're looking something, right or maybe there's someone speaking right in front of them yeah like in front of both of them sure if someone is presenting testimony uh and you ask them to repeat the same story three four five times for even though they'll tell you the same story they will use different words as they tell at different times which is why uh textual criticism would say that it's most likely that the text was written down by someone or multiple someones as Stephen brought up. So that's the idea behind the Q document that in order to have that level of preservation, it has to be written down. And so what are y'all's thoughts on those sort of things? I was also gonna say that something that should be considered is that uh, the women were the witnesses of the empty tomb first. And so they had to give their testimony. So uh, that testimony handed over is, you know, the words of wit, uh, women which I've heard classes on that before that, uh, that you, you know, the word of a woman at that uh, time period was not considered valuable, but it just shows that God can work through people that uh, are, are the least that you, you would not expect them to be used. Um, but as far as the uh, textual uh, criticism goes for just comparing the different gospels, I mean, we, we clearly can identify that the audiences are different. And so that's one of the things that comes as a result of looking at uh, how the books were written. The genealogies is always one of the first things that people will point out in the classes that, you know, one goes from Adam to Jesus, one goes from Abraham to Jesus, uh, just because one's being written to uh, the, the Jews and one is being written to the Gentiles that, you know, the entire world. Uh, outside of the Jewish nation. Um, I have to I have to insert in a bad joke before we get too far away from it. It seems like we've come a long way in the past 2,000 years from hashtag trust no women to hashtag trust all women. So that's a bad joke. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, you, now you're knocking me off my train of thought, so y'all pick it up. Yeah, Michael, um, do you do those sort of discussions bother you or do you think they're useful or what? So uh, as far as the Gospels go, no, like really just no problem there, because uh, I believe and I, I believe that the text says this as well. And it also makes historical sense that a lot of people would have been talking about Jesus, perhaps it would even have. Uh, ventured to write down about Jesus, as Luke says that he did. So I'm not bothered at all uh, by that. Um, Stephen? So, all right. So what about the examples that, I mean, if you're really getting down to the nitty gritty and your textual criticism, the areas in the Gospel of Mark where he says immediately Jesus went and did something where 
uh, and some of the other Gospels, it'll tell the same stories, but with something buffering it in the middle where it's like, well, he immediately didn't do that because he went and did something else here. Um, that, I mean, that is something that has been pointed out to me. And so uh, during textual critics, I've, I've heard how people kind of justify it, how Mark uses the word immediately, kind of overdoes it sometimes. So something just to, so it makes for an interesting class, I'll say that. Sure. Um, I think that when you, I, I perhaps would have more issues uh, when when you point out problems of, of uh timelines within the passion narratives at the end. I think that that is perhaps, um, that that's the part of the gospels that are most trying to be accurately captured like a photo would. Whereas I think the, the stories, the sermons, the miracles are often, uh, juxtaposed with each other to make a point. And Stephen, you mentioned earlier the different audiences, that are uh, that these stories are being sent to. My, my favorite juxtaposition is the one where Jesus heals the blind man, touch you know touches him, or I guess puts puts mud in his eyes, and then it says that he opened his eyes, but he could he couldn't see very clearly. You know, men were walking around looking like trees, right? And then he touches him again, and uh, he can see clearly at that point, right? So then in the next story. Uh, Jesus is asking them, who do people say that I am? You know, some say that you are Elijah or one of the prophets. Some say John the Baptist. But who do you say that I am? You're, you're the Christ. And so there's this idea of going from seeing things unclearly to seeing things more clearly. And, and then on top of that, uh, P, you know, Peter doesn't even then quite know exactly who Jesus is because uh, that's the same story where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because Peter's going against uh, what clear vision would tell him to do. So um, I think it's very possible that those stories did not happen chronologically right next to each other. Uh, but the, the author who puts them close to each other says, this is the point. This is a physical manifestation. They actually all off of each other. Yeah. Right. They play well. Yeah. They play well off of each other. I, yeah, I would agree. I think y'all know that I'm not too concerned about the chronology of the Bible. I don't think that the authors are terribly concerned with the chronology. Um, though I would say immediate Mark's use of the word immediately um, doesn't necessarily imply the same thing that it implies to us. Um, I think he's more saying uh, with gusto. <laughs> Jesus goes on. Um, I do. I hate to break it to you, Michael, but it is worth mentioning that there are uh, issues with the chronology between John and the synoptics versions of the, uh, of the Passion Week. Yeah, so, and and I I agree that that is something that's worth more exploring than other. I'm just saying that that takes priority in trying to establish a real narrative of all right. When did he go to the temple? When did he you know go yeah. away and curse a bush and um yeah for our listeners um I, I what i believe is normally accepted as the case is the synoptics are probably much closer to actual um historical chronology and john is trying to build up a metaphor of christ as a sacrificial lamb so he he uh, alters it a little bit um we don't have to talk about it but i think genesis the genesis uh thing 
is maybe worth discussing because it applies to issues of authorship. Um, but if y'all want to move on to maybe the, the next higher level, we can do that as well. Uh, do y'all have any thoughts on the Genesis stuff? So um, I, I think one, one, one idea to put forward here. So uh, just, you know, for all of those who went to school with me uh, that remember your freshman year of high school, reading the Epic of Gilgamesh, you're like, Oh, this story of a flood sounds a whole lot like the story that is uh, put forward about Noah in Genesis chapter six. So um, to me, that's always strengthened my faith uh, in that it identifies that multiple cultures are uh, telling a similar, uh, so you could call it a story, or you could say that they are uh, remembering something in the same way. I think to the, so uh, a skeptic might say that everyone has this common source and they're all picking from other cultures and saying, this is our story now, we're claiming it for our God. Or it could be that this thing actually happened. And therefore there's a lot of different cultures who are saying, do you remember when that really big flood happened? Let's talk about that. It would be important to all cultures if after the flood, uh, there were common descendants going to the Tower of Babel and they all went out. Everyone would know about it. Uh, so uh, I recognize that uh, there are, some, some find issues with that, but that's the way I interpret it. Uh, I, I want to point out more of the, the issues. So I think what you said, Michael, is valuable. Um, more than what I'm thinking of is the idea that Genesis is working from two different documents that both retell the flood narrative of Noah. They're both about Noah. It's mm -hmm. just two different things that have been pushed together. Uh, Stephen, did you have thoughts on that? Well, um, we've talked about it before on the podcast that the Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 11 are pivotal for a lot of doctrines that use it as its foundation, specifically uh, origin of sin, human nature, uh, marriage, um, sexuality, things like uh, of that, just uh, the, the origin of a family. Um, just mainly, just, it's extremely relevant for today just because it is counter to uh, the belief of evolution. Um, where uh, the Big Bang Theory that um, the, uh, basically trying to fit evolution into uh, the first two chapters of Genesis, uh, I think it does a lot more damage than it does to create peace by reconciling with someone who doesn't believe in God. So what uh, you got to ask uh, and question somebody's heart that is, uh, trying to tell you that evolution happened that doesn't even believe in God. So why are we trying to reconcile with somebody that has that worldview in the first place? Um, so, uh, can I offer up one other thought kind of in this area as well? Yeah, I, and I think my logic that with that last thing, well, we, sh we shouldn't be dismissing facts if they're facts, uh, but we should also be questioning things that are just basically an observational science where it's a guess um, and so, yeah, well, go ahead, Mike. Sure. So, um, so w one of the theories that I've, I've, I've heard is, that, and I kind of briefly mentioned earlier that in the fifth or sixth century BC, there was a collection of priests who were putting together documents 
And part of that is bringing together what we would consider the authoritative version of the Torah, uh, which includes Genesis. So uh, to the degree that, let's say, hypothetically, there was one version that had been passed down since Moses, uh, and then there's another version um, that was, um, the, you know, maybe was a, uh, a, a, di- a different look at the same events. You know, for example, chapter one of Genesis and chapter two retell some of the same uh, parts, but do it in different ways. If, you know, if I got to heaven and found out that that was actually two different authors and someone later on put the Moses version with someone else's version, that's not going to upset me. And the, the, the mosaic authorship of the Torah is not a pillar of faith, though I believe it to be true. Um, so, you know, the, the different parts of the flood narrative also are pointing towards, you know, one, one version of the story being true and then other p- people bringing in other uh, stories that have been told. Um, as Christians, we believe that God is controlling both of those narratives and to the degree that he needs to have those be uh, the accurate retelling, God is fully capable of having both of those come together to accomplish his purpose. Yeah, appreciate you uh, looking at that um, that discussion or that issue. Um, yeah, understanding what, what does it mean for your faith, at least, uh, if there are other authors present in a document that we think is written by a different author. Um, and then it becomes, yes, it starts to look a lot like discussions we were having about yeah. the Gospels. M- Moses does not sign the end of Deuteronomy and say, if anyone challenges my authorship to the first five books, let him be cursed. That, that doesn't say that anywhere. It is tradition that Moses wrote the first five books. Um, and I, I trust people who were closer in time than I was that uh, if they hold the authorship to be Moses, then it's likely either all Moses or mostly Moses. Maybe Moses was doing the compiling. That said, I, I think that, and I, I tend to believe, I, I put more credence in tradition because of uh, what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. That um, just because I'm later in time, I think I'm smarter. Well, no, people who were back then who were closer, especially on New Testament documents, likely knew what they were talking about. You know, you brought up Clement earlier. Clement, the book of First Clement was likely written uh, in the first century, uh, 90-95 AD. But because Clement wasn't a direct witness, I think likely all of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. Because he doesn't fit in that time frame, the early church said, no, uh, we appreciate Clement. We love Clement. He's our buddy. But that is not, that is not uh, canon scripture. To be clear, um, the people deciding the canon, Clement is long dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what, three, four hundred AD by the time yeah. it's full, like fully canonized? We, we have several versions of the canon that were pretty close. Yeah. Um, in Daniel, you mentioned Clement and uh, Shepherd, the Shepherd, as being kind of the two that were. I don't, and I don't think that I could be wrong, someone may know more. I don't think that either of those were actually ever put on a list. Um, it's just I, I, they were widely so, used. I think, um, I think that the shepherd was by Ignatius. Okay. Okay. Thanks. 
Um, so maybe the oh, uh, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, sorry, I, I have it over here. Irenaeus, yeah. Um, so I think the broadest level of criticism would involve what's called narrative criticism or bringing in literary criticism. I'm not sure that it has the same implications for this discussion as the other things that we've discussed, and it's very different than the other uh, forms of criticism we've discussed. But do y'all have any thoughts on narrative criticism and literary criticism as it applies to the Bible? Uh, I always get a little uh, uh, uncomfortable when trying to apply narratives uh, to a story that aren't there. I was, but I'll say that when I was in high school, I was the kid that when we read Lord of the Flies, I'm like, why are we trying to read into all of this? Why can't this just be about a bunch of boys that are having fun on an island? Why, why does everything got to be symbolic? Uh, but, uh, no, so there are definitely things uh, in uh, all throughout the Bible, both old and new. Uh, one that I just came across recently, and I can't remember the literary term for it, but how uh, in uh, the Beatitudes, where Jesus uh, starts uh, at a... Uh, Blessed are the poor. Yes, where he uh, goes down in in his form and then works his way back up with the blessings that are uh, attended to them. Um, Michael, go ahead. Sure. So, um, my uh, quick fun story of something I I've I guess we've probably all heard this, but uh, perhaps in your eleventh uh, grade English or history class, you might have heard how the Wizard of Oz was a commentary on the Gilded Age and how it closely mirrors this part of U.S. history. But the only problem with that is that no one ever observed that for 60 years after it was written until like the 1950s. Um, and Frank Baum himself never mentioned that that was what he was trying to do. All right. The reason I tell that story is because when we're looking at narrative criticism, uh, the thing that you would love to have is for the author uh, in this case, our human author, because we're not expecting God to give us that sort of direct revelation, but we want the human author to tell us, this is what I'm trying to do here. And aside from Jesus explaining his stories and John kind of getting at in Revelation, like, here's why I'm telling you this, we don't often get the author within the text telling us, this is the reason I'm using this form, this narrative, this genre. And so what we're left with then is having to infer from the evidence that is there. Daniel, you mentioned earlier using other letters that are similar from the time. Um, Paul writes his letters in a very similar way to the way that other people wrote letters from that time. Uh, so when we're looking at, all right, so what is pro forma that Paul is writing here? And what is, you know, this, uh, what's new doctrine that he's introducing? It's helpful to know, okay, well, this is what everyone wrote. And so when Paul is sending greetings, he's not trying to, to establish the way to write a letter. He's just saying, this is how people write letters. It's what you're used to. On the other hand, what he, the content of what he's writing is perhaps uh, more important for our reading. I like that, and uh, sorry, Daniel, I'll interrupt you. I'll be quick. Uh, but think about what we're used to as the people in today's time reading this, uh, and we we want to know those things. We want to well, what are all the literary and different patterns of uh, teaching that are being 
equipment in use in these texts. And it's almost like we want uh, the same thing as what we have in our DVDs where you can watch the show and listen to the commentary uh, as you're watching it. Like, so yeah, if Jesus said, okay, here's your Bible and here's the commentary to go with it. So Jesus is like, all right, so when I was doing this teaching right here, uh, what I was trying to, I was specifically talking to one person who I knew was uh, in the wrong. And so it was going to directly at them, even though when people read it, they're reading it as if it's a blanket statement to everybody for all of the rest of eternity. But that's not what we have. But it would be cool if we did, though. Yeah. Um, I, I was just going to give another fun fact for our, our listeners. Michael, you made me think of, we, we see other ancient letters, and, and we see that Paul and uh, Peter and others, uh, their form, their, they have sort of the same template as these other ancient letters. But uh, Paul's, as it kind of feels like when you're reading it, it is, in fact, much longer than most any ancient letter that we have. And so that sort of already tells us, I think Paul's trying to do something different here than most letters. I think he has made this letter into a book. He doesn't want to pay the publishing costs for writing a book. They just... <laughs> I'll just put in the letter. Um, uh, so, guys, we don't have a lot of time left. I think we're a little over forty minutes already. Um, what and and we could have we could divide this up into two podcasts. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, what's a takeaway? What's something that um, maybe one little fact that you you want our listeners to know about on the topic of biblical criticism? Don't limit yourself. Sorry, Daniel, I did it again. You got to speak faster. Um, don't limit yourself to uh, just being content with a surface level reading of it. Uh, it'll benefit you as a Christian if you go and look into uh, more of the things that other people have said and weigh that with uh, uh, just the surface level reading that you do have so that you aren't extrapolating things that are just assumptions. Uh, but it will help you grow as a Christian, uh, but I think you just do need to be careful about it. And the other thing that I was going to point out was uh, um, look at the last words of Jesus, where there's different accounts of things that Jesus said. Uh, and that's a good uh, place to start if you want to look at uh, a, just a basic level of textual criticism where uh, each of the accounts are different. He says some of the things in some of the same in different books. Uh, but there's, uh, I think there, I think it's in John where uh, he uh, uh, says, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." Which those were his last words. Were and in a different book that says something else was his last words. So interesting. I might start there. But yeah, it's a good place to begin. I'll I'll make two comments. First one is if you are interested in uh, literary criticism and narrative criticism of scripture, the last topic we were discussing. We actually have podcasts. I think it's something about grab bag. Uh, I think it's Bible grab bag, something like that. And it's basically us each sharing uh, two or three uh, interesting analyses of the text. And we're sort of doing narrative criticism in that podcast. And it's, it's uh, well worth a listen. Season uh, two, episode 14. Okay, last episode of the of that season, right? Yeah, there was one after it. Oh no! Okay, how embarrassing! It's like the the clip show episode before the finale. Um, okay, 
And then the the other comment I want to make, this will be sort of the cloudy comment of our conclusion, and Mike will give us will give us something a little bit more optimistic to end off with. We'll see, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, maybe we'll just be depressing here downward. Um, the I just want to bring up that biblical criticism has a rocky uh, history in evangelical Christianity, of which the three of us, and I believe most of our listeners are coming out of evangelical Christianity. And that has to do with some of the implications or conclusions that are accepted by some or even most uh, people who are participating, who are engaging in biblical criticism. Uh, It has to do with discussions of authorship, which may, um, and inerrancy, which gets into questions of inspiration and what does that mean. Uh, While I wholeheartedly agree with what Stephen said, that it is uh, worth engaging anyone who is a a student of the Bible, as hopefully all people become, um, there's a lot to to delve into and to study and to look at. Uh, Be aware of some of those some of those difficult issues, those critical issues that come up and uh, seek out good uh, sources, seek out good um, uh, works that you can read, uh, scholarship, and also uh, mentors, other disciples of Christ who will help you uh, deal with those difficult issues as they arise in your studies. Well said. Uh, I, I guess I'll just end this with um, death comes to us all. <laughs> no, uh, sorry, that, that is too negative. Um, so uh, throughout this conversation, I've returned to, you know, uh, this one thought I've had is a lot of people say that, you know, they have the hardest time with the end of Daniel or Revelation. I have the hardest time with Philemon. I think that Philemon is a bizarre book uh, of, Paul saying that he's being nice. And like, when I read it, I'm like, that's not very nice at all, but you have to, to me, the way I always bring it around is to, I'm reading this from his perspective that he's trying to get some mission accomplished with the blessing of God. So um, I guess the one positive thing that I will end us with, end us off with is that um, when you are getting into biblical criticism, uh, you're trying to understand how does the text work best. Uh, undergird it with your own love of Scripture, your own love for God, uh, knowing that what you're trying to find is the the best interpretation of uh, the most true interpretation of what God has spoken to man. So you are necessarily looking at a supernatural text that as Christians, we believe that God has spoken to man best within Jesus, by Jesus, as the Hebrew writer tells us, but God is directly speaking to us through the scripture. And that should be an encouragement uh, that outweighs any of the discouragement that we might feel about the confusion that arises from biblical criticism. All right, this is a long episode, but I'm glad we had this opportunity to have a good conversation. Uh, I think we've got about four episodes left in the season, so we appreciate all of our listeners so far. Uh, Look forward to talking to you next week.